And please take your Bibles this evening and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Last week we had our book sermon, uh, an overview of 1 Thessalonians, uh, the desire being that, that you would uh, get an idea of the entire context of the book. Uh, see who it's written to, who wrote it, why it was written, the, the scenario surrounding um, the people. And, and what we learned is that these were people that were greatly persecuted for their faith. And when Paul and Silas and Timothy were there, they were um, greatly persecuted and hated as well for this faith. We don't know how long Paul had been able to be in Thessalonica. Uh, it must have been some time, but certainly not as much time as he would have wanted And so we step into the the nitty-gritty this evening. We're going to dig, start digging, and we'll be digging for some time now. Uh, The title of the message, The Fruit of the Gospel, and we're actually going to look primarily at verses 1 through 3 and verse 9 and 10. Uh, We we do need to do a little jumping around. Uh, A lot of the messages that we're going to be speaking of within the context of this first chapter um, are going to be... Um, speaking about some of the various issues that come up, uh, words that come up, concepts that come up as we start, and then particularly as we get into chapter 2 and and 3 and so on, uh, we'll be able to dig a little bit more into the text itself. One of the great debates in Christian circles today concerning salvation is the debate over cause and effect. There are so many people claiming so many things about the nature of salvation and, and it can become a truly a, a terribly confusing thing for theologians and laymen alike. When is a person really saved? How can we know that he is saved? What must take place for a person to be saved? These debates rage and, and they rage in all circles and certainly we're not going to uh, become... Uh, We're not going to end the debate tonight. I I can promise you that. But the reason the claims of various theological systems concerning salvation are so confusing is because every system has nuggets of truth. They, They take a certain aspect of the reality of salvation and oftentimes they'll take it to a farther end than perhaps it's intended to go, or they'll, they'll look at it to the exclusion of other elements of, of salvation. And so uh, we, we have a tendency, there's a threat, there's, there's always the possibility that because of how we experienced our own uh, salvation, our own experience of being born again, uh, we can get a little bit single-minded or, or, or uh, imbalanced as we consider the idea of what it means to be saved. Today through 1 Thessalonians 1, we're going to spend some time speaking, not not so much about salvation itself, though salvation will come up, but we're going to speak about the fruit of salvation. The outcomes, the elements, the actions in the heart of a person that unquestionably manifest the reality that they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, this does not mean that if you're not showing these things that you're inherently not saved. I'm not going to be talking about who's not saved. Tonight, we're going to look at who is unquestionably saved. The things that manifest themselves in the life of a person, that that this is the manifestation of the Spirit. These are things that are clearly of God. These are things that indicate without a doubt, yes, that person is a believer. 
Because that's what Paul was speaking of in, in chapter 1. The manifestations in the heart of the Thessalonians that proved to him that they were believers. As we do so, though, I need to make a few things clear. I need to make clear what I am not telling you. What I'm not trying to tell you so that you can interpret my words properly and so that I'm not mislabeled as supporting some theological system which, in fact, I do not support. And as we begin, may I first point our hearts and our minds toward a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11.3. You can turn there if you like, but we'll be right back in 1 Thessalonians. It's up on the screen behind me as well. And in our King James translation, uh, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, I say that it, it reads this way in the King James because it does, at least uh, in, in a couple of other translations I referenced, it does read differently in other translations and, and affects the meaning somewhat dramatically as opposed to what the King James translators put here. And I went back to the, to, to the Greek and, and in, in, the, in the Greek text underlying the King James, I am very comfortable with how the um, Greek trans, with how the King James translators wrote this. When you go to the other Greek text that underlies the other versions, because there's a different Greek text underlying the King James and underlying the other versions, the more modern versions of the Bible, uh, when you go to that Greek text, the way they translated it makes sense as well. So the, the problem is not a, a problem of translation. They're both well translated. The problem is the Greek text behind it is different. And so this is how the King James reads... And there's something truly marvelous about this. There's something that we must not forget about the gospel, and that is that there is a simplicity in Christ. That the gospel is not a complicated, convoluted mess. The gospel is deep, is it not? The gospel is intricate. I'm still learning about the gospel today. I'm learning new things about the gospel. I can't tell you how much... I've learned about the gospel in the past three years since I've been a pastor, and yet I accepted the gospel many, many years ago in its simplicity. And from the, the moment that I, I accepted the, the tip of the iceberg of the gospel, I've been digging down ever since, and that, that iceberg just keeps getting bigger. The gospel is deep, and it is intricate, but it is simple as well. I deeply lament that I even have to take time at the beginning of this sermon to address error. But in our day, particularly with your capacity to leave this building and to turn on your radio or to turn on your television or to, or to get on the internet and listen to anybody and everybody, the proliferation of confusion on the subject of salvation, it is important not just to protect you as you study the Word of God, but to protect me as I seek to relay the Word of God, that I tell you what I'm not teaching this evening. As Paul, Paul spoke to the church of Corinth in this passage, it was his fear that they would be drawn away from the sincerity, from the singleness of mind, from the simplicity that is in Christ. We all know from our time in 1 Corinthians in our morning series that the church of Corinth had many different philosophies, many different ideas, even many different theologies uh, floating around. In some ways, the church was a little bit of a, a theological and philosophical mess, was it not? As we've been walking through that book. And when a church finds itself in that place, 
in a place where there's a lot of different ideas on theology in, in the same body of believers and, and there's no theological unity, it goes in one of two directions. It can stand on what it is true, what, what, it, what it finds is true. It can open, it, open their Bible, determine what the Bible says according to plain reading, literal grammatical interpret, interpretation of the Word of God, stand upon that, or it can back off and accept all viewpoints. Just allow everybody to believe what they would like to believe with a subtle emphasis on what they think is probably correct. And it seems in the Corinthian church, Paul saw the danger of this happening. The church being a place where they were very willing to accept various ideas. And the problem is, if everybody believes something different, then nobody can take a stand. And nobody, then we're not going in the same direction. Now, I'm not asking you to believe everything that I believe. Nor do I claim that everything I believe is correct. I know I've got flaws. I don't know what they are. If I did, I'd correct them. But I know I've got flaws. I know I've got blind spots. You've heard me get behind this pulpit before and tell you that I've, I've changed my understanding of a scripture. I apologize. And I'm going to go in a different direction on something. You've heard me say that before. But for all of that, I desire that we as God's people would at least understand and be heading as best we can in a similar direction particularly as it relates to theology. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, called this idea that they were drifting away from the simplicity of the gospel a deceit of Satan, in the same way that Satan deceived the mind of Eve, by subtlety introducing small amounts of error or small amounts of confusion into an otherwise straightforward, single-minded matter which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Satan has found great success in the church today in this. Satan has found great success splitting, confusing, um, scattering the church through theological confusion. So much so that the average layman sometimes has a hard time even knowing which way is up. So as I step into the text this evening, let me tell you the directions I am not going with this. Number one, I am not preaching this evening the idea of lordship salvation. And let me state what that means. Lordship salvation teaches that the moment a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will both accept the gift of salvation and they will simultaneously submit themselves in every way to God. They will simultaneously submit themselves to God in every aspect of their lives so that all sin in their lives will immediately, for the most part, fall away. Not saying that they become sinless, but saying that they will immediately transition away from all of their sin, that at the same moment they get saved, they will accept Christ as Lord in every area of their lives. The Bible does not teach this, nor does personal experience bear this out, I would have to believe, in my life at least, as well as perhaps many of you that as you got saved, you understood the simplicity of the gospel, you accepted it, and then perhaps it was years to work out of your life some of the problems, some of the sin, and, and for all intents and purposes, we're all still working on that, are we not? We're still finding things in our lives that need to be yielded over to the Lord, areas of our lives that we have not submitted to Him. Now, certainly at the moment of salvation, a new believer recognizes a new master. 
begins to care about what God thinks, but it takes time, learning, maturity for them to recognize the need to yield their will to God's will. So I'm not preaching a lordship salvation tonight. I'm not preaching what has been come to known as an Arminian salvation tonight, which states that mankind has the responsibility to accept or reject Jesus Christ to the exclusion of anything, any work of God. While man is a free moral agent capable of personally accepting or rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, he never operates outside of God's sovereignty in his life. God is at work in salvation. God is convicting men's hearts of sin. It is not a man-centered acceptance. It's a God-focused reality. However, on that note, I am also not preaching a Calvinistic or Reformed gospel this evening. Calvinism or Reformed theology states that salvation is a work of God exclusively apart from any act of the will of man. Man has no say in whether or not he gets saved. Man is only responding to the faith that God has given to him so that those that get saved get saved because God has chosen them and those who do not get saved do not get saved because God has not chosen them. I am not preaching such a salvation. God is without a doubt the one who initiates in our lives salvation through conviction, through an understanding, but God um, is also, he's also the one that justifies men through remission. He has given to each man, however, the responsibility as a free moral agent to exercise his will toward or against the gospel of Christ. This is what our church stands for. This is what our church believes. We do not stand in one camp or the other. And uh, on, a, on a side note, many of you know, as I've taught this, Typically speaking, when we see these great debates in, in Christianity, if you want to know where the right place is, look toward the middle ground. Because typically what happens is men swing their pendulum to one side of the theological spectrum or the other side of the theological spectrum. And if we know anything about God from the Psalms and the Proverbs, we understand Him to be a God of balance. We know that God is sovereign over all things, but we also know clearly from Scripture that God has given man a free will. That we are free moral agents under the purview of God's sovereignty. That God has sovereignly limited Himself with respect to man's free will. Where does that line cross? Your guess is as good as mine. But I'm not preaching any of those ideas in our uh, a concept of salvation this evening. What am I preaching then, right? Well, by God's grace, I'll be preaching the fruit of the gospel, the manifestations that exhibit themselves in the lives of those who have received the gospel that indicate to outside observers the validity of what we claim in Christ, the validity of what has happened in our hearts, that somebody who's looking at us, whether they are a believer or an unbeliever alike, would look at you and say, that is something unnatural. That is something spiritual. That is something that I don't have and that is something that I can't have if they're a believer uh, in myself. Or, a, uh, or, a, or if they're an unbeliever, excuse me, or a believer looking and saying, that is something that bears the marks of the Holy Spirit within them. So once we do step into the text, I'm going to be talking not about cause, not about the cause of salvation, but about the effects of salvation. Not what makes a person saved, but what indicates that a person is saved. Not about accepting Jesus Christ, but about the manifestations of those who have accepted Jesus Christ. 
And I mention again, we dare not confuse the two. We dare not say that the effects of salvation are essential to the cause of salvation. We dare not say that if we don't immediately see the fruit of salvation, that a person did not get saved. But what we can say is that our study today will give us insight into the nature of what it means to be redeemed. The, the, the nature of a redeemed life. What we ought to expect. What we ought to look for. What we ought to be living out in our lives because we are redeemed. Because we are believers. These characteristics that we'll look at this evening ought to be in you. They ought to be a part of your life if you are a born-again believer. And if they're not, there's one of two reasons. You're either living outside of the will of God as a believer, and therefore not manifesting the Spirit of God, or you are living outside of salvation. You have never accepted Christ as your Savior. And when we do see the fruit of the Gospel, as we sang in our hymnal tonight, we'll have confidence. We'll have confidence in our salvation as we see the fruit of the gospel being worked out in our lives. We can confidently declare, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. We can confidently say, He lifted me out of the miry sin because I see the fruit of His doing in my life. And I need to begin, however, with the gospel itself. So I'll invite you to look either on the screen or to turn with me to John chapter 3. I'm going to use Old Faithful tonight. John 3.16 As I describe to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul spoke of the simplicity that is in Christ. Let's speak about it briefly this evening. The gospel in its simplicity and clarity is this. Sin is anything that we say, do, or think that is, it is, that is opposed Excuse me, to the nature, the character, the will, or the Word of God. Sin is anything that is contrary to who God is and what God has commanded. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. For the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our memory work for this month, Isaiah 64, 6, For we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have carried us away. This sin has separated us from God and it, uh, destined us not just to physical death but also to eternal spiritual death and eternal separation from God in a place of literal burning known as hell or the lake of fire. Eternity in hell is the just payment for your sin debt against God. But God loves you. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves you so much, He sent His Son Jesus Christ to pay for your sins so that you could be free from the debt that you owed through that sin. Jesus Christ was a man, but He was also God. 100% man, 100% God. God in flesh. Jesus lived a sinless life upon this earth, teaching men how to have a right relationship with God. 
On account of these teachings, Jesus was rejected and killed, hung on a cross, made to suffer and die. And the Bible says that as He hung upon that cross, God made His Son, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We can be made righteous through the atoning death sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus' death brought eternal life, brought eternal forgiveness for sins. And then three days later, the Bible tells us that God the Father raised His Son, Jesus, from the dead. On that day, death was defeated, sin was conquered, and eternal life was secured for anyone and everyone who will willingly accept this gift of salvation. Because like any gift, salvation is indeed a gift that must be accepted. And the divine condition that Jesus Christ has placed upon the acceptance of the gift of salvation is belief on the name of Jesus Christ. Belief is not just acknowledgement. It's not just me saying in my mind, yes, Jesus existed. Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, Jesus died upon the cross. Because there's a lot of things that enter our mind that never actually reach our heart. There's a lot of things that we know, but we don't actually believe. There's a lot of things that we recognize happen, but we've never actually placed our faith or our trust in them. But when we believe unto salvation, we are acknowledging, we are placing our full faith in who Jesus is, in who He claimed to be, and in what He came to do. Jesus is God. Jesus claimed to be your Savior. Jesus died on the cross and rose again for your sins to pay a debt that you could not pay. And if you will place your full faith, your full trust in these truths on the authority of God's Word, you will receive salvation from your sin. You will be born again. So verse 18 of John 3 tells us, He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those that are condemned are condemned not because of the gross wickedness of their sin, but because their sins having been paid, they did not accept the free gift of salvation that Jesus has offered unto them. All who will be in hell one day will be there because they rejected Jesus Christ. So, as we transition back to Thessalonians, this saving work of Jesus Christ had taken place in the Thessalonian church. They had accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Paul had preached the Gospel. They had received the Gospel. But Paul had been at this a long time at, by this point. And he knew enough to know that sometimes what people say they did is not always what they actually do in their hearts. You've seen that before. A person claims salvation. A person claims to accept the Gospel. But when you start to dig a little bit, you realize that they didn't really. That there was nothing in their heart that um, brought them to a place of humility where they recognized that they needed to reject any other means of salvation in order to accept the free gift of Jesus Christ, that they needed to uh, truly believe what Jesus Christ said, that they need to accept that for themselves. We've seen that, and Paul had too. 
And it comes down to moments of true testing, moments of decision in a person's life, indications as to whether they have actually accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior or whether they were just saying words. And what Paul is going to do this evening is present the evidences that he saw in the life of the Thessalonian believers that convinces him that what they did, that their proclamation of belief on the name of Jesus Christ was genuine. So let's begin in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll read through verse 4. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Paul begins this epistle very much like he begins other epistles. We spoke last time we were together about who these, who the writer was, Paul and, and his companion, Silvanus, probably also known as Silas, and then Timotheus, who we also know as Timothy. And Paul extends to them his common greeting, genuine words of love and of affection that we would do well to understand. Paul wishes upon this church grace and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel performs many works in the heart of a man. The gospel transforms a heart to pursue moral sanctification. The gospel causes a man to see the world as transient, temporary, to strive for the world that is to come, not the world that is here. But perhaps the deepest and most essential transformation that the gospel introduces into the heart of a man is the transformations of grace and peace. Paul tells the church of Rome in Romans chapter 5 verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Peter tells the strangers scattered abroad in 1 Peter 5 verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that uh, that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The moment the Thessalonian believers received the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were introduced to a concept called grace. And it was not just something that they received, but Paul and Peter both present it as something that within which they stand. Grace is simply defined as unmerited favor, being given something that is absolutely undeserved. And grace is not just something, as we mentioned, we receive. It's something that we use in our daily lives. It's something that we, we, we live in. We don't just step into grace and then move on. We live in grace. When a believer sees God for who he is, he begins to see that every breath, every opportunity, every advantage that he has is nothing more than the blessing of the grace of God upon him. But it goes deeper than that. This grace is magnified in the lives of those who are obedient to God. While God's grace abounds even towards the sinner, the obedient see it in a deeper way, see its manifestations the greatest. The richness of spiritual joy and blessedness are reserved for those who are obedient to the Word of God. 
And so Paul's wish of grace to be upon these believers is a wish that their lives would be so consumed with the will of God that God will be able to pour out upon them all of His spiritual blessings awaiting them in Christ. So Paul wished upon them grace. He also wished upon them peace. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where God goes from being the righteous judge and the condemnation of our souls to the gracious Redeemer and Shepherd of our souls. That is a transaction that took place the moment you received Christ as your Savior. You went from being under the condemnation of a righteous God to being under the loving mercy of a gracious God. He went from condemning your soul to a place called hell to shepherding your soul as a child of God. But salvation doesn't just bring peace with God. We talked about it this morning. Salvation brings peace, period, does it not? We learned this morning that the peace of God which passeth all understanding is reserved for those who will willingly lay their problems at the feet of Jesus Christ in thankful prayer. We find there is no mountain too high, no river too deep that the loving arms of our Savior cannot bear us safely hence. And so, in desiring for this church grace and peace, Paul wishes them the very deepest realizations of a life in Christ, secured by willing obedience to the will of God. And he goes on and he says this in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now that's the end of the verse, but it isn't the end of the thought. In our King James Bibles, at least, you'll notice the end of the verse has a semicolon, not a period. And in this case, the next phrase is where we're going to be spending the bulk of our, the time that we have left this evening, in verse 3. Paul says in verse 3, as he continues, we'll start in verse 2 for, for context, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Paul's prayers, both his prayers of thanksgiving as well as his prayers of supplication unto God, were based upon the experience that Paul and his companions had while they were among these men and women. And Paul tells them that what he saw while he was there and what he has heard through Timothy since then was the very deepest expressions of genuine faith and spiritual understanding manifest in this group of believers. And he mentions three distinct things that remain, things that manifested their conversion. First, their work of faith. Second, their labor of love. And third, their patience of hope. And these were the three things that Paul says he remembers. Things that he remembers in their lives when he saw them, when he was teaching them, and the things which gave him confidence that these men and women had indeed genuinely accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it's these three manifestations of the fruit of the gospel in a believer's life that we're going to look at this evening. Now, thankfully, Paul does not leave us to our own definitions of what it means to do a work of faith or a labor of love or to have patience of hope. He defines it for us. What does he mean when he says a work of faith? What is a work of faith? What does he mean when he says they worked a labor of love? What does that mean? What does it mean that they had patience in hope? Well, look with, verse, look with me at verse 9. Paul, as he speaks of their testimony, he says this, For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned, from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Within these two verses, we see these three manifestations defined. And so let's walk through them together. Paul spoke first in verse 9 about this work of faith from verse 3. So verse 3, the first element is a work of faith. And notice what he says in verse 9. How ye turned to God from idols. A work of faith. It almost sounds contradictory as we think about the Scriptures, does it not? We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that you are saved by grace. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What these verses tell us is that when you stand before God, and God says, Why should I let you into heaven? No one will be able to point to themselves and say, Because of something I did, God. It's not because of my faith. It's not because of my works. It's not because I went to church or I got baptized. It's not because I gave regularly. It's not because I was a good person. The only thing that anybody who is a true believer will be able to say on that day is because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And through His atoning sacrifice, I have the means by which to enter into heaven. And so we know this. Works cannot save us. But the Bible is just as clear that the works we do reveal our hearts and confirm in our lives whether or not we are indeed believers. Consider what James teaches in James chapter 2. We'll read verse 14. James says in James 2.14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Now, James asks a question here. Can faith save him? And I've heard and read and uh, particularly heard lots of sermons on this, one way or the other. But this is not an ambiguous statement. The Greek makes it very clear what is being said here. And and I often, very rarely do I I, I come to you and appeal to the Greek. I, I very rarely do that. But let me just tell you that all the ambiguity that you might find in the English translation is cleared up in the Greek. Because of the way he asks this question, the Greek is literally saying, no, this faith cannot save him. This kind of faith, the faith that has no works, the faith that does not manifest itself, it doesn't have teeth, is not saving faith. This kind of faith is not saving faith. Now, again, this is not contradicting Ephesians 2. Okay, James says in verse 17, Even so faith, 
if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. We have a contradiction, Pastor? No, we don't. And we understand that as we consider what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 1, what he's calling a work of faith. Paul is speaking about actions taken in the lives of people who claim to believe in Jesus Christ that confirm their faith. Works of faith. So was it, and remember, we're, we're distinguishing between cause and effect here. The cause of their salvation was not any particular work. It was Jesus Christ and their faith that they placed in Jesus Christ alone. But the inevitable effect of their salvation will be works of faith. That inevitably in the lives of a believer will be elements of their faith. Now, does that mean that they're immediately going to to cast off sin? No, we've talked about that. It's a sanctification process in years, but there will be something in the heart of a believer. They're not going to just go back to being an unbeliever in lifestyle again without any fit of conscience. We know that because the Scriptures tell us that if we're not chastened as sons, then we're not a son of God. So if nothing else, there will be a chastening in the heart of of a believer if they have accepted Christ as their Savior that will bring about the recognition of the need to, to do something because they have been saved. In other words, Paul is speaking about actions that confirm their faith. And what is the work of faith that Paul speaks of? Well, in verse 9, he says that they turned from, to God from idols. This is the concept of repentance. Now, once again, the... In, Uh, let me emphasize, I've emphasized this before, that when we talk about repentance as being a part of salvation, there's a lot of debate here. But I will say this. The word repentance is not mentioned once in the book of John. The book of John is the book that is the most clear and most comprehensive about what it means to be saved. The book of John is the treatise on salvation in our Bibles. And the word repentance is not once used in the entire book. Belief is the exclusive condition upon which salvation is secured. However, repentance is a clear manifestation that one's faith is genuine. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And in this case, Paul describes this work of faith that when the people recognize that Jesus Christ Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the things that immediately happened in their lives was that they began to turn to God from their idols. Now, this became very manifest in Thessalonica. Perhaps those idols are a little more subtle in our lives. But the idea is that the things that they had been serving, the things that they had been trusting in, because we know that a part of salvation is to set aside those things that we're trusting in, and so a work of that salvation will be manifest in our lives as we reject that which we have been trusting in and we pursue that which is Christ unto eternal things. Now again, in this life, as Western world Christians, we don't place, usually, little wooden idols that we're worshiping and bowing down to in our houses. Those sorts of things aren't as common. The idols that we have in our lives are usually things like good works or church attendance or 
baptism. Those are the things that we think are are doing us good unto salvation. And those are the things that we, we would turn away from. And maybe it's not quite as manifest. But it's going to be there. That work of faith is going to be there. And that's what James is talking about. A man says he's saved, but he's still relying upon all these things and he says these things are going to get me to heaven. Well, there's, that's faith without works is dead. Paul says, I saw a work of faith in you and it's that you turn to God from your idols. But in this case, in Thessalonica, it was so plain because they probably did actually have little idols on their shelves. Little Zeus, little Athena, little Aphrodite. And they actually trashed them to turn to the living and true God. Paul did not say that this was their faith, but this was a work manifested by their faith. It was a work that confirmed externally what had happened inward as they confessed to believe in Jesus Christ. Repentance is a manifestation of faith, not inherently a condition of faith. It's an effect of salvation from sin, not inherently a cause of salvation from sin. And again, depending on how we define repentance, I might agree with you that it is a part of the salvation process. But as I've defined salvation or repentance here, and as Paul is defining this idea of turning to God from idols, he's speaking of it as a manifestation of their salvation, not as the root of it. And I think we need to be clear on that. Second, verse 3, Paul speaks of a labor of love. What is this labor of love? Well, look at the the very last bit of of verse 9. That they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is described in verse 9 as their decision following their repentance and submission to God to pour out their hearts and souls in genuine service to the living and true God. Faith works in our hearts repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works brings about in our hearts the desire to live for God, the desire to do living works, the desire to serve God with our hearts, to serve God with our lives. And such was the case in Thessalonica that God's people were determined by God's grace to serve Him with all of their might. And Paul describes this as another indication of genuine salvation, of the genuine nature of their salvation. Not just that they had removed from their lives any idol that would seek to compete with God's claim upon their souls or their eternity, but they had also added to their lives. So it's not that they just removed from their lives, but they then added to their lives a genuine determination to follow after God's commandments, to serve Him with their time, to serve Him with their money, to serve Him with their efforts, to serve the Lord. I trust you see perhaps more clearly now how these descriptions are not a cause, but they are an effect not the source of salvation, but a manifestation of salvation. In our own hearts and lives, are these things not usually a process? Does it not take time for us to study the Bible, to be trained in the things of God, to remove idols from our hearts, to purpose to serve God with what we are and who we are and what we have? We know of some, maybe even, in whose hearts these things happened immediately. I know that there are, I know several people who immediately when they got saved, it was like everything transformed. But I certainly know of others where it took a little time. 
the final manifestation in verse 3 was that they had a patience of hope. A patience of hope. And we see this explained in verse 10. To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Hope in the Bible is not about a fearful longing. It's about an earnest expectation. We use that word hope to talk about something we're not sure if it's going to happen, but we kind of want it to. But that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is something that we absolutely expect to happen. And we're just waiting for the day. An earnest expectation of that which is to come. The highest degree of well-founded expectation of good. Patience of hope is not the idea of a man who barricades himself inside his church waiting for Jesus to return, but rather the man who recognizes Christ is coming so he gets out and gets busy doing the work of God because he could return at any moment. And this is the idea that Paul describes in verse 10. These Thessalonian believers waited for God's Son from heaven. It doesn't mean they got up on a hill and they waited. It means they were busy doing the work because they knew He was coming. The church is constantly aware of Jesus Christ's imminent return. The church was busy serving the one who had delivered them from the wrath that is to come because they loved Him and they wanted Him to be pleased with them when He arrived. Such was the testimony of the believers of Thessalonica and such were the proofs that Paul gave that these men and women, as he remembers them, were indeed genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we consider these proofs, these effects of salvation, the fruit of the gospel in the heart of these Thessalonican believers... I have a couple questions for you as we apply. Question number one. Are Paul's listed evidences of salvation manifest in your own life? Salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Everyone grows at a different rate according to what you've been taught, according to how much you've understood, according to how old you are, according to your willingness to submit to the Word of God. But if you don't see any compulsion in your heart to turn from things that you're trusting in, to turn to God from things that you're trusting in, if there are other things in your heart that you are trusting in and saying, when I stand before God, I tell Him, I don't know what I tell Him. I tell Him that I was a good person. I tell Him that I've been baptized. I tell Him I have given to church. I tell Him that I've done uh, my good should outweigh my bad. If those idols are in your heart then there is no manifestation of this fruit. Then there's a problem there. You should begin to wonder why. You should begin to wonder why if you are serving other things than God in your life, if you are pursuing materialism, if you are pursuing um, prestige and power on this earth, to the exclusion of the things of God, if you are pursuing what this life has to offer and that is your focus and that is your love and that is your concern and the things of God don't concern you and the commandments of God don't concern you, if this is you, you should begin to wonder why because that's not natural for a Christian. I remember I told you that puts you in one of two places. Either you're a Christian that is well out of fellowship with the will of God or it puts you in a place where you are not a believer where you are not born again, where you are out of step with God because you are in darkness to this day. 
If you are not, if you have no desire to serve the living and true God, at the very least, there's something wrong with your Christian walk. And you should begin to wonder why. If you are not eagerly anticipating the Lord's return, you should begin to wonder why. True belief is not found in a prayer or a recitation or a catechism or a basin or a pool of water. True belief is not found in words. True belief is rooted in faith, which is a heart issue, which no one can know but you, but will manifest itself in works of faith. Do you have any? Are Paul's listed evidences of salvation manifest in your life? Now, the very fact that you are uh, eager and desirous to submit yourself to this kind of teaching is a good sign. Because I do kind of teach it hard. And I teach it plain. But, it's not a given. It's not a gimme. Second question as we close. Do you know people who claim Christ but don't manifest any evidence? Thank God for people that are willing to be honest with us. Proverbs 27, verse 6 tells us this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. There's great wisdom in that. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The Scriptures tell us that we are to love one another. I've given the illustration before. If you knew how to cure cancer with all the thousands, millions of people that are affected by cancer in this world. You knew how to cure it, but you were keeping it to yourself because you were afraid of what they might think of you because you didn't want them to get angry at you, whatever it might be. You're not doing them any favors. If someone's standing out in the middle of the road and a bus is hurtling toward them and you say, oh, well, they might be offended if I went and pushed them out of the way. They might get hurt. So I'm just going to stand and watch as they hurtle toward their doom. There's no love. There's no consideration. There are millions of people in this country who claim Christ but are no more born again than the chairs that you're sitting in. You don't do these people any favors by going along with their deception. Now, it may not necessarily be the best idea to get in their face and call them unbelievers. We know that that doesn't always work out very well in this country. But, can you see how this passage of Scripture can equip you to ask them the needful questions to help them make sure that they're in the faith? Could you see how perhaps going up to one of these unbelievers, going up to your friend or loved one and asking them about their work of faith, about the manifestations of them turning to God from idols, when did it happen? What was replaced in their lives? Maybe they were saved at a young age. I certainly couldn't tell you what my manifestations of turning to God from idols were at, at my age of five when I was saved. I, I, I don't know what the idols were in my life. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to be saved. I knew that Jesus Christ was my Savior and, and uh, that I was a sinner and I accepted Christ as my Savior. But at that young age, maybe, they, maybe they, they wouldn't remember. But you know, the second question is good for everybody. 
What if you went up to a friend or loved one and asked them about their labor of love? How have they determined to serve the living and the true God? Every Christian should be able to answer that question well. Ways that they determine to obey God on a daily basis. Things that they do and they don't do because they love their Savior. Things that God has taught them. Ways that God has changed their lives because of it. These are things that we should all be able to say. What if you went up to your friend and loved one and asked them about their hope of patience? What's the most exciting thing to them about Christ's return? What are they doing today in light of Christ's return to prepare? See, these are manifestations and they're not just for some. Each one of us is actively in this process of setting our lives apart unto God. And this is a passage of Scripture that shows us that when we do set our lives apart to God, when we have accepted Christ as our Savior, then there will be development. There will be something. There will be a direction change. There will be a work going on in our lives. It may be fast. It may be slow. But if you're going to sit there and say, okay, I'm pretty sure that my, my friend is saved, but I'm just afraid to ask them about it because I don't want them to get offended, but I just, don't, I just plain don't see any fruit. Is there any love there? What if they're not? Are we just going to roll the die and play the, play the chances that what they're claiming is true? And never confront them and say, look, I know this is what you say, but look at what 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says about those who are saved. Is this you? I can't tell you whether or not you are saved. I don't know your heart, but what I do know is the manifestations of the gospel in Jesus Christ that Paul reveals in the scripture and those that have believed, and I don't see them in you. Can I ask you why? I'm not accusing you of not being saved, but what I am doing is asking you why I don't see these manifestations in your life. Because there's something, the Bible says there's something wrong in the heart of a person who is not manifesting the fruit of the gospel, but claim the gospel. We see these things in our own lives. We see the way that God has been working in our hearts, removing the unprofitable and adding to us the virtuous. We know what it is to watch God convict our hearts of sin than to yield it to God. God is doing that to you because you are a believer. And He's doing it to all believers. We mustn't be afraid to talk about it or to ask others about it because it is the very process that visibly manifests the genuine nature of our conversion and the conversion of others. So, I guess I wanted to present that last little bit this evening, perhaps to help you. I know uh, some folks in this room, maybe some folks listening on the internet as well, um, are, are not in a place where they can comfortably just confront people about their salvation. And it's getting harder in this culture. There's more and more people who have a false, either a false claim of salvation or they are indeed saved, but they're just plain living in sin. And yet we as Christians are getting to a place in our, our lives where culture is angry at us when we call them out on it. Angry at us if we question what they unquestionably say is true. And it, it doesn't always help to bring the Bible into it. But, you know, when you use the Word of God, they're not getting angry at you then, are they? You may bear the brunt of that, but who are they getting angry at? God Himself. The truth of God. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter that 
when we be buffeted for our faults, he says, and take it patiently, what reward is there? If we do something wrong and we get persecuted or we get reprimanded for it, well, there's no reward in that because we did something wrong. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable unto God. There is spiritual reward for the believer who is willing to do well. Who is willing to manifest their love unto others. And look, I'm not, I'm not telling you that if you have come to a point of impasse with someone that you need to keep hounding them. That's not what I'm saying. You, you know them, I don't. You know your situation, I don't. That's between you and the Holy Spirit and that person. But what I am saying is that we do have an opportunity as believers who understand the manifestations of the gospel to confront folks with it. To help them out of their deceit. Because that is what Paul warned about in 2 Corinthians 11. That the simplicity that is in Christ had been muddied as Satan deceived Eve. So have people been deceived because the idea of salvation has been so twisted. And regardless of what you believe about how a person gets saved, it's pretty clear the manifestations of a person who is. So let's use that. Let's be willing to use that. And then by all means in your own lives. Are these manifestations real in your life? Let's close in prayer.